this year's trips, all right? So I hope you do that. Okay, take out your Bibles if you have them. If you don't have one, there should be one on a seat back in front of you and turn to John chapter 18. John chapter 18. Uh, a few years ago, I had the joy of leading one of those trips to to Guatemala, and we were in Antigua, Guatemala, and if you've ever uh, been there or seen about it, Antigua is this, this beautiful city, and it's kind of nestled right between these three volcanoes, um, Agua, Fuego, and I don't remember the name of the third one, but they're all over 12,000 feet. I think Fuego is over 13,000 feet above sea level, and it's active, so it erupts hourly, and the place that we were staying was directly across the road from the church that we were serving with. And every morning there was this staircase to nowhere in the place that we were staying and it went up to the roof. And I would go up there and I'd just have my quiet time with the Lord on the roof. And it was just majestic. Like so often I'd end up just sitting there. I wouldn't even read my Bible. It was just praying and looking around because you'd literally look up and in the morning there'd be this kind of like mist and you couldn't see the tops of the mountains, and then as the sun would come up, it'd kind of burn away that mist, and it would reveal these towering peaks over you, and it was just fabulous, and you would just worship your creator and his beauty. And I remember talking to one young man who served there and lived there with this, with this church, and I said, how do you get anything done? Because every time I walk out of a building, I just look around, and I'm just in awe. And when I said that to him, he goes, you know, actually, I just never even notice. Like, it just becomes like, this is just where I live. This is just what I do. And, and it was interesting because he even said, you know, I'll, I probably should stop more and just catch a beat and look around and worship my creator in light of the beauty that's even around me. But I don't do that, all right? So why do I bring that up? For this reason, how often... How often have you heard the account of Jesus's death and resurrection? And has it become old to you? Uh, some of us here, if we've been believers for a long time, we may have heard about Jesus's death and resurrection a thousand times. Some of us here, maybe you've never heard this taught before, but either way, we can't allow this to become stale to us. This is central to everything that we believe as Christians, and it is wonderful. And so here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna slow down, slow way down in John's gospel. And the reason we're gonna do that, first and foremost, is because John slows down. In fact, all of the gospels slow down when they get to the account of Jesus's death and resurrection. That's what makes them gospels. Um, and so we're gonna spend the next eight weeks, the last eight weeks in this sermon series, we're gonna be in four chapters. And actually from here to Easter, about five weeks, we're only gonna be in two chapters. And I need you to prepare yourself a little bit because... This, this is heavy stuff. Um, but I, I think by, by sitting in it for some time in these next weeks, in little chunks, it will make our Easter celebration together that much sweeter. And so I'd ask you, maybe even right where you're at right now, just ask the Lord that he would 
Help you in the weeks ahead, particularly between now and Easter, just to, in a fresh, new way, help you to see something from his word, from his truth, that impacts you specifically, that causes you to walk away anew, believing him and in awe of him. Uh, John's account of these verses it's, it's different from the other gospels. We've seen this as we've been going across John. He likes to omit details that the other gospels include, and then he likes to include details that they don't. Like he loves to kind of fill in some of the blanks for us. And so as we come to this text today, John is really concerned with us grasping three details about Jesus so that we will continue to believe in him, okay? So what three details, what three truths about Jesus do we need to see from John today? We're gonna put them up here and we'll just put them up here right at the beginning. We're meant to see these. We're meant to see his identity. We're meant to see his control and we're meant to see his purpose this morning in no particular order. So we're just gonna leave them up there and look for those three things as we walk through this text together this morning, all right? Let's read the first 11 verses, what we're covering. John 18, one. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook of Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, he also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. And so Judas, having procured a, a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, he went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. And then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, he came forward and he said, whom do you seek? And they answered, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and they fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. And this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I've lost not one. And then Simon Peter, having a sword, he drew it and he struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. And the servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Father, open our eyes this morning so that we might see wonderful things of you from your word, Lord. Help us to be impacted by your truth in a fresh way. Help us to see you in your beauty and in your grace and in your purposes, Lord, and walk away worshiping because of it. In your precious name, amen, amen. All right, go back to verse one. Verse one, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out, I believe he went out of the city is what this is intending to tell us, with his disciples across the brook of Kidron where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Okay, I wanna show you this this morning on a map, all right? This map is awesome. 
I was looking for maps this week and they were all super complicated than this. And then I found this one, which is used in like a kid's illustrated Bible and it's fabulous. And so we're gonna use this to orient ourselves around what's going on here this morning. So this is Jerusalem, all right? And down here, down here in the bottom, I'm probably covering it. In the Southwest corner is the upper room, okay? So we've been in the upper room. He was in the upper room. They enjoyed the Lord's Supper together. He did his teaching. It's just chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. All this is happening. And at some point, at some point in the evening, they leave that upper room and they make their way probably across the bottom part of the city here. And then they exit out of the city on the southeast side. They walk down this valley, they cross the brook and they end up up there in the Garden of Gethsemane, okay? And why is that important? Well, here's what's gonna happen in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is gonna be betrayed and then arrested. And you know what they do? They bring him back for the first part of his trial to the high priest's house, if you can see that in the southwest corner, down across the street from where they were before. And I looked at this, I'm like, why, why, wouldn't you just walk across the street and turn yourself in? Why do all of this walking? And some people, some people think it's probably because, um, right, Jerusalem is full at this time during the Passover week, and there would have been possibility for an uprising to happen if this arrest happened right in the middle of Jerusalem. And Jesus wasn't interested in causing an uprising. He was interested in sacrificing himself. And so maybe that's the reason. But it could have been, but I... I think there's a potential other reason. And I think we see it right here in this text. Look down at verse two. It says, now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, the garden. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. So, so, so Judas had left, remember, he left in the night, he went out. He went out to get all this crew of people that were gonna come and be part of arresting Jesus. And he was gonna betray him, right? And where was he gonna take him? He was gonna take him to the garden. He was gonna take him to the place where he knew that Jesus typically went to talk with the father and his disciples and to get away from the city, which was up in the garden of Gethsemane. So, so literally they go from the upper room to the garden of Gethsemane for what reason? So that Jesus can walk himself into an ambush. That's why. Keep going, keep going. Look at verse, look at verse three. So Judas having gotten this band of soldiers and some officers and chief priests and Pharisees went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Okay, a, a band of soldiers. This is a, a cohort of Roman soldiers, All right, This would have been between 200 and 600 soldiers that would have been part of this, all right? We're not sure exactly how many, but it was somewhere in that range. And they would have been coming from, if you look up there north of the temple, you'll see a little fortress thing. That's where they would have been coming from. So Judas would have gone there. They would have gotten the soldiers, all this crew together, and they would have walked up around the north side of the temple and come up into the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is. And, and they're led there by, by Judas. But don't, don't think of this like Judas is leading them. He has no authority. Judas is a confidential informant. That's what Judas is. 
He's gone and he says, I'll give you Jesus. Do this for me. I'll show you where he's at. And so when it says he's leading them, they are literally just letting him guide them to where Jesus is. And the scope of this scene is so much more extensive than what we typically think about as. I don't know about you, but I would typically think of, oh yeah, there's a couple soldiers and a couple religious leaders and Judas. And they pop up in the garden and say, we're gonna arrest you. That's not what is happening here. They have brought a small army in order to arrest Jesus. Why? Well, probably because this is Passover week. And the city, the city has swelled to maybe 10 times its size with pilgrims coming back into the city. It could have been as many as 2 million people that are here for the Passover. And they're looking, remember, to arrest what they believe to be a possible insurrectionist. And they would have been worried about resistance from him and his followers, flight risk, and even an uprising from the people. But think of the size of this. So they, they didn't sneak up on Jesus and the disciples. They were carrying torches and weapons and lanterns, which by the way are all details that are in the text so that we realize that the person writing this is a firsthand witness. Like John was, John was there, all right? But, but they would have seen them up in the garden. They would have looked down and seen and heard this line of soldiers coming in the night. And Jesus and his disciples would have had more than enough opportunity to run. And in fact, maybe his disciples tried to convince Jesus to run before they got there. But he's not interested in running. He's exactly where he needs to be. And you've got these soldiers and Judas, and it says with them also officers from the chief priest and the Pharisees. That's interesting. We literally have enemies here that are working together against a common threat to their existence and their power, a carpenter rabbi named Jesus. Look at verse four. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, he came forward, knowing all that would happen to him. He came forward. They come out with Torches and lights. I always think about it like the, like, was it that Beauty and the Beast? Where it's like, kill the beast. They're like stomping up in the thing. Like here they come with torches and lights in the night because they're expecting him to run and to hide in the darkness. And that's ironic, isn't it? Because the light of the world, he doesn't retreat into the darkness. He steps into the darkness so that he can drive it back. I mean, picture this. He walks right up to them. None of this happens without his permission. All of this is happening according to the foreordained plan of God. And then in verse four, what's he, what's he say when he walks up? Who are you looking for? Who are you looking for, guys? I mean, it's like, hey, guys, out for a nice stroll in the garden tonight? Beautiful night, isn't it? Who are you all looking for? And verse five, he answers, they answered and they said, Jesus of Nazareth is who we're looking for. And Jesus said, I 
am. He, two words in the Greek, ego, a me, I am. Jesus here in this passage will for the last three times explicitly identify himself as the great I am. Verse six, and when Jesus said, I am, they drew back and they fell to the ground. At the sound of his voice declaring his divine identity, this crowd of soldiers and religious leaders is knocked to the ground. It makes me think of Philippians chapter two when we see what it's gonna be like in the end when it says, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess what? That Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And it's interesting here, they could have come in and they could have willingly humbled themselves before Jesus, but they don't. So what's he do? He brings them to a place of humility. And Jesus, for just a second, pulls back the veil and gives everyone just a small dose of his glory. The manifestation of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. As I was reading through this this week, I got to this point and I stopped and I was like, huh, I think my savior just flexed. Like just a little one. He's just like, bam, bam, you know? <laughs> and then whoosh, sound his voice, they fall down. This is just one more evidence of his identity, his power, his control, and he's showing them that if, if he wanted to, he could remove himself from this situation and set up his kingdom in any way that he wanted. But the way that he chooses is the way of the suffering servant. The way that was prophesied 700 years prior to this that we see in Isaiah 53. Keep going, verse seven. So when he asked... So then he asked them again, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you, I am he. I wonder if they ducked. He's just like, <laughs> so if you seek me, let these men go. Let them go. You know what's interesting about that? It's an imperative. He's not requesting anything from Judas from these soldiers, from the religious leaders at this point. He's orchestrating this. They are responsible for their actions, but he's in charge. Let these men go. Why does he say this? What, what's happening here? A couple things. First, he's protecting his disciples. Uh, look at verse nine. He said, this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one of them. He's fulfilling his promise, a promise that he gave back in John chapter six, a promise that was in his prayer in John 17, verse 12, in the protection of, of his own. He's also doing this. He's showing here that only he can walk this path to the cross for the salvation of mankind. Not only that, He's demonstrating his love for his disciples. And, and don't, don't skim past that. I think sometimes we're tempted. We're tempted to look into scripture and go, oh, wow, Jesus really loves that person. 
oh wow, Jesus really loves his disciples. You realize it's not meant to stay there? He loves you too. He loves you as he loves, as he loves them. Don't forget that. And I hope, I hope you'll see that over these next few weeks before, before Easter. The last thing that he does here with this is he's giving us a preview of the work on the cross here. Uh, we've referenced um, across John uh, the book of Exodus. Okay, remember, remember Exodus. What's happening in Exodus? God goes to Moses and he says, Moses, here's what, I, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go into Egypt. I want you to talk to Pharaoh and I want you to lead my people out of slavery. And Moses says back to him, he says, okay, if I go to them and I say the God of Israel has sent me, they're gonna say, what's his name? What do I tell them? And in Exodus 3.14, God says, tell them I am. I am sent you. Okay, two chapters later, we see Moses and Aaron in Exodus chapter five, and they're standing before Pharaoh. And what do they say? They say, the God of Israel has sent us. And here's what he says. Let my people go. Sound familiar? Moments after Jesus identifies himself as I am. What's he say? Let my people go. The I am is gonna rescue his people from spiritual bondage. But he's not gonna do it. He's not gonna do it through war. He's gonna do it by standing in their place. He will be our substitute. And we see the, that work of the cross already beginning right here in this exchange. Because Jesus is arrested, they go free. Because of his captivity, they are free to go. Look at verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, he drew it and he struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. And the servant's name was Malchus. Like, hey, Peter. <laughs> first thing, first thing. Uh, Simon Peter's name here, the fact that it was the right ear, the fact that the servant's name was Malchus again, one more time, it's, it's showing us that this is from a firsthand eyewitness. These are details only John would know if John was there. We find out in Luke chapter 22 that Jesus actually heals um, Malchus's ear too in this. Some people think that uh, Malchus is mentioned because he ends up becoming a believer, which we don't know for sure, if that's true, but that would, that'd be pretty neat, wouldn't it? Years later, they're reading this and they're like, Malchus, you were there? Like, tell us that story. And by the way, so here's, so here's Peter. So here's Peter, pulls out the sword, swings, chops off an ear, which by the way, he wasn't aiming for the ear. No one's that good, okay? He's, he's aiming for his neck. He doesn't hit his neck because he's a fisherman, not a soldier. But you come and you're like, why, why Peter? And on the one hand, he loves Jesus, doesn't he? He does. But he still doesn't understand. He's still not getting it. So what's he do? He takes matters into his own hand, literally. See my boldness, Lord. You said I'd deny you. I'm not denying you. I'll fight for you. 
I've got this. And in his anger, which honestly was probably fueled by his fear, and in his misplaced zeal, he lashes out. He takes the situation into his own hands. And do you hear what he's saying by doing this? He's saying, my will be done, not yours, Jesus. And before you're too hard on him, how often do we take sword into hand and start chopping away at what we should be trusting the Lord with? And think about this. Jesus just knocked down an army with his name. And Peter's like, I got this. (laughs) How often do we try and control something that's meant, that's meant to be in his hands? How often in our fear and in our anger and in our misplaced zeal do we say, my will be done? And here's Peter. I'll save you, Jesus. Get behind me. What's Jesus say? No, Peter. I'll save you. And Peter here hasn't hasn't denied Jesus verbally yet. That's next week. But he's denying him here with his actions. Look at verse 11. So Jesus said to him, Put your sword into its sheath, Peter. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Uh, The cup across the Old Testament, it was a picture. It was a picture of of God's wrath and judgment. The cup here is filled with God's just judgment. Notice, look at this verse. Notice, notice. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given to me? That's important. The cup of God's wrath has been given to Jesus to drink. It has not been given to his enemies to pour out. And Jesus will drink to the last drop the cup of God's just wrath against the sins of mankind. Uh, Before we take communion here in a few minutes, I wanna ask this question. how do we get here? Like, how do we get here? I mean, we've been, we've been going through the gospel of John, right? And we're seeing Jesus's life and his teachings and his miracles and his calling of his disciples and his training and sending of his disciples. And, you know, there's been hard times, but there's been good times and there's been, and it's been flowing through. And all of a sudden, here we are in the garden of Gethsemane and there's betrayal and soldiers and swords and arrests, which by the way, you can never say scripture is not interesting. But you gotta ask, like, how did it come to this? And to answer that question, it's what you have to do. You have to go back to the garden. Not the garden of Gethsemane, the garden of Eden. We see that account in Genesis chapter three where Adam and Eve deceived by Satan, doubting the goodness of God, desiring to be God themselves, they do what? They disobey him and they rebel against him and they plunge themselves and all of humanity into the curse of sin, 
in that same chapter, what do we see? We see God mercifully pursues them when they are hiding and he disciplines them. Sin has dire consequences. But then he graciously, he clothes them and he covers their shame and he gives them hope. He promises in Genesis chapter three that one day one will come and although he will be wounded, he will ultimately crush the head of the serpent. Romans chapter five, in Romans chapter five, it says this, verse 12, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all mankind because all sinned. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, Adam, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. Adam and Eve in the garden of Eden rebel against God saying what? They said, our will be done. And now what began in the garden ends in a garden as Jesus in Gethsemane says, not my will be done, your will be done, Father. Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, one with the Father and the spirit I am. And he knows all, and he controls all, and he's here in the Garden of Gethsemane, not by accident, not against his will, not just as some hapless victim. Jesus willingly begins to walk to the cross obediently to lay down his life in our place and to take the just wrath of God on himself. And he will deal decisively with sin and death and crush the head of the serpent. Why? So that we might believe, so that in our shame, he might clothe us with the righteousness of Christ and so that we might have eternal life and be in relationship with him now and forever. That's what we remember when we come to communion. That's the truth around which we orient our whole lives for the glory of God and in obedience to our King. He loves you and he begins demonstrating it right here as he walks into his betrayal and his arrest to stand in our place. If you have your communion cup, go ahead and Take that out. I have one down here. If you're, a, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you've placed your trust in him for salvation, we want to invite you to take communion with us here this morning and remember the, the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus on our behalf. Go ahead and 
take the bread that's there. Scripture says on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he said to his disciples, this is my body, which is given for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. Father, thank you. Thank you for sending your son Thank you for giving him that cup that he willingly, sacrificially, substitutionary, he drank it to the last drop, Lord. What we deserved, he took so that we could believe have life thank you Lord here for those that don't know you would they today see your beauty see their need for a savior and trust you for salvation Lord for those of us who do know you would you help us afresh as we come out of this time of remembrance to align our lives rightly in light of the truth that we claim to believe, Lord. And live, live not just, not just longing for eternity with you, although we do that, but live daily for your glory and in the enjoyment of relationship with you by your spirit. We love you. We need you. We are grateful beyond words in your precious name.